This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 21st, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Seema Jayachandran talks about trading carbon for cash in Uganda. Rachel Bernstein, editor of our career section, brings us some career planning advice for early career scientists. And David Grimm is here to give us this week's hits from our online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on hyper-social dogs, or at least very social dogs. Why are dogs so friendly? I mean, we're not even going to talk about cats here, but just dogs are just, you know, they love to see you coming. They're like, just they go up to strangers if they're, you know, a nice dog. Um, Do we breed them to be that way is kind of the big question. Now it looks like researchers have found a region of the genome in dogs that correlates with this kind of socialness in the dog. How did they find this, Dave? Well, sir, they took a bit of a long shot here. And the reason they focused on this region, this is on dog chromosome 6, is because there's an analogous region in humans that's been linked to a disorder called Williams-Barren syndrome, or sometimes just Williams syndrome. And this is a syndrome, it causes some retardation, causes a bit of an elfin appearance, but most importantly for the purposes of this study, it causes people to be very, very social. They go up and just hug random strangers. And so it seemed like, hey, if there's something uh, similar happening in dogs that may explain how dogs got so friendly over time. And so what the researchers did was they first tried to kind of test different levels of socialness in dogs and wolves. How did they do that? Well, they took about 18 dogs and 10 wolves. And these were not just sort of wolves they got from the wild. These were wolves that have been hand-raised by people. And even though these wolves have been hand-raised by people, they were still a lot less social than the dog. So for example, if a person, or even especially if a stranger came into the room, the dog would come up and greet the stranger and spend a lot of time with that person where the wolves were a lot more standoffish. So they would say hi maybe, but they wouldn't hang out. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. They spent a lot less time. Okay. Uh, And then let's go to the genetic evidence here. So what kind of genes did they see or what kind of variability were things missing or present? Well, what they did is they found a lot more of sort of 
genetic manipulation or mutations going on in the dog region of this uh, of the genome that is sort of similar to the human region that's been linked to this disorder than they saw in the wolves. And it seemed like the more social the dogs were, the more manipulations they saw in this region. And did they compare different breeds of dog and see something there? They didn't do that, although they did look at different breeds of dogs in the study. They didn't correlate different breeds with these actual with these genetic signatures. So what does this suggest about your favorite topic, dog domestication? <laughs> Second favorite okay. to cat, cat domestication, but yes, yes. Um, yeah. So basically, you know, there's, you know, one of the big mysteries of dog domestication is why we embraced wolves in the first place. And there's been this idea that wolves may have some somehow maybe tamed themselves a little bit at first, become friendlier, more social, and that was really the first step into us embracing dogs into our camps, into our society. And this gives us some genetic evidence for how that may have happened. Now we have a story on speedy animals. We found the five fastest animals, <laughs> and you won't even believe what they are. <laughs> it makes a pretty good web headline, right, Dave? But you would believe, right, because one of them is the cheetah, and uh. the cheetah is the fastest land animal. But what's sort of surprising here is we would expect, actually, really large animals to be the fastest. You might expect, for example, an elephant to be faster than a horse, which is certainly not. And right. the reason you might expect that is because elephants have a lot more of a type of muscle called fast twitch. Um, and we talked about this in the chimp story a couple of weeks ago. Chimps have more of these fast twitch muscles, which makes them a little bit stronger than people. Well, fast twitch muscles or fast twitch fibers can also give you speed, give you acceleration. So you expect larger animals, more fast twitch muscles, these animals would be the fastest, but clearly that's not the case. All right. And in order to figure this out, researchers measured the speed of a huge range of animals. How did they do that? Yeah, they looked at nearly 500 species, not just land animals, but also swimmers and flyers. And what they found was mid-sized animals tend to be the fastest. And we have a handy-dandy chart, and it's kind of an uh, inverted U. There's a bump in the middle showing you know, high speed and middle-sized mass. And what you're suggesting here is that it's not about the amount of muscle, but something else that's important related to size? Well, even though large animals like elephants have a lot of these fast twitch muscles, they run out of fuel very quickly because their metabolism can't keep up versus something like a cheetah, where they have a balance between having enough of these fast twitch muscles, but also the metabolism to support supplying these muscles with the energy that they need. Let's talk about how this can help us understand dinosaurs better. Of course, we have to tie everything back to dinosaurs. And indeed, you know, we often wonder how fast T-Rexes ran, for example. Like if you were took a time machine back to the time of the dinosaurs, could you outrun a T-Rex. Mm -hmm. Maybe this study will shed some light on that. Can we really discount, you know, the way these animals are put together? I mean, things are flying, things are running. I mean, some of this stuff has got to matter. Well, yeah, it's a great case in point. For example, uh, we are about the same weight as a cheetah, even kind of the same size, but... And shape. And not the same <laughs> shape, though. Um, and so that... And cheetahs can run three times as fast as we can. So clearly, being built for speed also makes a huge difference. Last up, we have a story on killing all life on Earth. We featured apocalyptic science on this podcast before, you know, what is likely to kill all the people, what life will be like after, say, an asteroid hits us or the sun decides to fry all our electronics. But what about wiping out every single bit of life? 
What would it take, Dave? Let's do it, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you and I can't do it because it would take an enormous amount of energy, so much energy that it would boil off all of Earth's oceans. At least that's what scientists are saying in this new study. And they did a calculation that figured out how much energy that was? Yeah, you would need, let's make sure I get this right, 6 times 10 to the 26th joules, which is about a million times more than the total annual energy consumption by humans, or a quadrillion times the energy needed for the space shuttle to lift off. So let's just say a lot, a lot of energy. If we couldn't do it, who could or what could cause the oceans to boil? A couple scenarios. One, we could have to be hit by a very, very large asteroid, something about the size of Vesta or Pallas, which are the largest asteroids in our solar system. Or we'd have to be struck by the energy from an exploding star, from supernova, or from gamma ray bursts. Any of those things on the horizon? No. Fortunately, um, first of all, any asteroids that big are not headed in our general direction. And also, nothing likely to um, cause a supernova or gamma ray burst is in our neighborhood. The closest thing is about 30 times farther away than it would need to be to sterilize Earth. So... I really like how tardigrades are the kind of the measuring stick for this whole study. Can you talk about that for one yeah, second? Yeah, tardigrades, these microscopic animals, there are they are called water bears because they look like little tiny teeny tiny bears. They seem to be able to survive everything. Intense doses of radiation, being shot out into space, being frozen, what have you. They survive, but even tardigrades would not survive these cataclysms because at the end of the day, they still need water. And if you boil off all the water, tardigrades don't have anything to drink. Okay, Dave, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a robot that acts a bit like a plant or a bit like a fungus. It's got a tentacle that can sort of weave in and out of things. There's a cool video to go along with that. Also, a story about the vast amount of plastic we are producing, not just now, but how much we're going to be producing over the next 30 years, and the numbers are staggering. Finally, for Science Insider, we've got a story about why some scientists hate the NIH's new definition of a clinical trial. Also, the latest on the controversy surrounding two female scientists suing the prestigious Salk Institute in California. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. When severe weather hits, a forecast on your phone just doesn't cut it. You need to know what to do, how to stay safe, and what to expect next. You need The Weather Channel, the nation's most trusted source for severe weather coverage. They go beyond maps and apps with weather experts on the front lines of the storm. The Weather Channel meteorologists make sure you understand the why behind the weather and what steps you need to take. You've never seen weather like this. The Weather Channel is exploring our atmosphere like never before. They're leading the way with the use of real-time augmented reality, allowing you to see us inside a hurricane or the potential threats of a storm surge. Understanding our atmosphere is the best way to prepare for severe weather. Every season, every storm, Every time you watch, trust the Weather Channel. 
now, Rachel Bernstein, editor of our career section, is here. The <laughs> hot career topic for today is preparing for a career in advance. Okay, I'm being a little silly, but in fact, a lot of people go to grad school. That's their career preparation. But maybe there needs to be a few more things lined up in their lives before they get out there and get a job. So Rachel, what is the number one thing that you would want to tell someone in the middle of a PhD program about how to prepare for their future besides doing their lab work or doing their field work? I mean, it sounds pretty basic, but it's really just think about it. Pick mm -hmm. up your head from your research just a little bit. You know, research is definitely the most important focus of your graduate work, and it needs to be. But you also need to take some time to just pick your head up and think about what comes next. If you know what comes next, think about what you need to do to prepare for that. And if you don't know what comes next, then that's fine too, but take the time to figure it out. What are the, some of the surprises in store for you, say, if you decide not to think about these things and you kind of just go through grad school, finish your PhD, then what? What happens for a lot of people in that case is that they do what we sometimes refer to as a default postdoc, mm -hmm. which, and you know, a postdoc is the right choice for some people, but I don't think it should ever be the default option. You should always choose to do a postdoc because it's going to advance your career and development and training in some way. You should have a plan. So if you don't have a plan by the time you're at the end of grad school, doing a postdoc can often feel like the obvious thing to do. Mm -hmm. But then you're basically just putting yourself in the same situation a few years further down the line. I feel like we're kind of going around this idea that maybe you won't be in a tenure track position. Yes, absolutely. That's a, a big part of it. And so we know that there are not enough tenure track faculty positions for the number of people who want them. But there are also is the fact that a tenure track faculty position is not the right position for a lot of people. Some people just don't want that. And if they've taken the time to think about it, they might know that. If they don't take the time to think about it, they can feel like that's what's expected of them or it's the sort of obvious thing for them to want to pursue because you know they've been in academia their entire career. Right. And it seems like I'm putting air quotes around this, the easy option. You know, we know it's not easy, but it's the one that is the most straightforward in some ways. One thing that you mentioned to me before this was that people in PhD programs can actually get an internship in a totally different setting. One, where is that common? And two, how do you convince your advisor to let you do that if you think it's a good idea? Yeah, so I personally think that internships are one of the great opportunities during grad school, and these can come in a variety of different forms. Uh, it might be something that is through some program or uh, your funding agency. It can be something that's directly through the employer, or it can be something that you sort of cobble together yourself if you figure out that you want to do an internship in the business office at a pharmaceutical company. You might be able to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So the question of working it out with your advisor is also a really important one. Some advisors, if you say that this is what you want to do for your career development and that it's going to help you figure out what you're doing with your future and you're going to develop some additional skills that you wouldn't in the academic setting, 
ideally, that would be enough to convince them. It's not always going to be the case. There are some advisors who don't want to lose a student for that much time. So you could try to come up with some creative timing solution where it might be that you're only spending one day a week at the internship instead of going away full time. Or it could be that you formally write out a case for these are the skills that I'm going to develop. This is how I can help the lab when I come back because I will have learned these things. Also, anecdotally, it seems that people who come back from internships are frequently motivated to get back to their work and therefore productive. Right. What are some of the things that getting an internship outside of the lab in a business office in a communication setting, what can you gain that could either contribute to the career that you have in mind if it's tenure tracked position or something else? So one of the things that I think a lot of PhD students could benefit from developing are these types of what we call soft skills. So whether that's communication or negotiating with a variety of different people who uh, have different interests, various things that go beyond the day-to-day of doing research and analyzing data and writing it up. So you're going to learn these different types of soft skills depending on the type of internship. But that's one thing. The other is just seeing how work proceeds in a different type of environment that, you know, many students have gone straight from undergraduate to graduate school and all they know is academia and you know the world of business or nonprofits or other types of employers. It's really different. And just being in there and seeing it in action can be a really useful experience as you're trying to figure out what's the right fit for you. Okay, I think I'm going to turn now to say you're not a PhD student and you're listening to this recording. Um, Mm. So say you're an advisor, you have a job where you're working with students. What should you do to get them thinking about their careers in a thoughtful way early enough that it'll make a difference? If you have a PhD student in your life, I think just talking about it and asking them about it is a great start, not in a way that introduces pressure, not saying that you're in your PhD program, you need to know right now what happens next, but just raising it as an idea of something that they should be thinking about. And a lot of tenure track professors are really well suited to help train students to become tenure track professors, but not to pursue other things. But they might still have a network that they can tap to help connect students to other types of careers, other resources. So I think trying to figure out what you can do to help the students in your life figure out the direction that is going to work for them. And also knowing that sometimes you're not going to be the best resource, but that you might know people who who would be helpful to them. Okay, Rachel, is there anything else we should say about career planning. The other thing that I would raise generally is that students have a lot of freedom to sort of create their own opportunities, that it's not about, it's not waiting for when your program or your funding agency has a, implement some sort of career program, but they can take the initiative to do the things that they want to do. All right, Rachel, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks. Rachel Bernstein is the editor of the Science Careers section. You can find reporting, tips, and careers columns on the site at sciencemag.org careers.
We're going to forge ahead with a monthly or almost monthly career segment. So write us with career topics that you'd like to see us talk about. Send emails to sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. There are plenty of tactics to help mitigate climate change. If you've been keeping up with the news this week, it turns out not having a kid may be the best thing you can do to help the climate fight, but that's not an option for a lot of different reasons and a lot of different places in the world. One important effort, though, has been tackling deforestation. Seema Jayachandran is here to talk about an experiment in which forest owners in Uganda were paid not to cut down their trees. Welcome, Seema. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So why would we want to pay people not to cut down trees? I mean, what about making it against the law or paying people to plant trees? Why this strategy? Well, the the first thing to keep in mind is that most deforestation is happening in pretty poor parts of the world. Where we were working, these were poor farmers who owned a little bit of forest and they were cutting down trees and selling the timber really to make ends meet, to be able to send their kids to school. And if we outlawed it, we would be making poor people even worse off. And so the idea of rewarding them is that we still get the benefit of conservation, but rather than making them worse off, we're actually making them a little bit better off. You know, there's also another reason that's a little bit more subtle, which is we might not want everyone to stop deforesting. If there's uh, some farmer who's really great at it and she's employing a lot of people and producing a lot of food, we probably want her to keep doing that. And so the idea of, of setting a payment level and then making a program voluntary is that you get the deforestation in, in a cost-effective way. You're essentially harnessing market forces and, and that can be efficient. You also asked about planting trees. Uh, There are definitely programs doing that, and it's a good idea. But I think there's more excitement about preserving the existing forests, partly because of when we get the benefits in terms of carbon dioxide. When we have small trees, they're not absorbing that much carbon dioxide right now. And, you know, in 20 years, 30 years, they're going to be absorbing a lot. But we don't care about benefits or we don't value benefits in the future as much as we do benefits today. So big question in this type of approach, you know, paying people not to cut down the trees is figuring out, A, if it reduces deforestation, and B, if it's a cost-effective approach. You know, how do you do the first part? How do you figure out if this kind of intervention works? Yeah, figuring out how much of a difference the program makes is is trickier than it might, not, might seem, you know, because even when the program is in place, there's probably going to be some deforestation. So you just want to know how much worse would it have been if you if that program hadn't hadn't been there. So what we do is we use a randomized experiment, meaning we worked in 121 villages and we randomly chose 60 of them to have this program. And then the other 61, it was just business as usual. And so what that does for us is we can uh, look at what happens in the, the comparison villages with business as usual. And so we know how much tree loss was there going to be without the program. You use satellites to measure how how the trees fared over the course of this experiment. Yeah, exactly. You know, to measure how much tree loss there is, you need a pretty good measure of trees. And so we used a very high resolution satellite imagery with some pretty fancy computational methods. We could classify each pixel as is it a tree or not, and then we get a a nice measure of of tree cover in each of the villages. You know, both 
before the program was in place and then again afterwards. And what did you see when you looked, you know, you compared the before and after photos, basically, of these of the trade coverage? You know, did this um, monetary intervention work? Yes, it worked. It worked uh, quite well. If you look at the villages without the program, uh, over the one and a half to two years from the beginning to the end, about 9% of the area that was covered by trees had disappeared. So that's a pretty high rate of tree loss. If you play that forward, you can see that these forests aren't going to be around for very long if we don't do anything. Whereas when the program was in place, the amount of deforestation was basically cut in half. And that's you know, that's equivalent that in each village, about five and a half hectares of trees are in place that otherwise wouldn't have been. And that's about eight soccer fields. Is that what you were expecting when you looked at, you know, other groups that have done a similar type study but haven't been able to get quite this level of data or be able to use randomized experiments? Yeah, I think the previous literature has had mixed results. And, you know, even though there's a lot of enthusiasm about this approach, there's also some skepticism. And so I think for me, this the program worked better than I was expecting. It's not surprising that it reduced deforestation. You know, it would have been truly shocking if it had increased deforestation. But I think there are a couple of reasons people are worried that maybe it won't work so well. You know, the first one is that when you pay people for conserving their forest, some of those people were going to have conserved it anyway. You know, so they they weren't going to be cutting trees. They're getting the payments, but you're not really getting any extra gain from that. So the program is only really beneficial if you get people to enroll who were planning to deforest, but because of these financial incentives, they change their behavior and conserve. And so it really depends on what mix of people enroll in the program and you know, do you really get people to change their behavior. A second concern is that people might follow the letter of the law and, and preserve their forest, but then they'll just go cut trees somewhere else. They'll go to the government forest reserve and, and cut it. So you don't really get a net improvement. It's just people found a loophole. And you could see that with the kind of by looking a little bit more broadly than specifically every individual's plot of land, right? Exactly. We can look at nearby land and see whether we see different patterns for villages that are near the government forest reserves. Okay, well, let's talk about the money part here. So you paid people and then you also calculated the monetary worth of this carbon reduction. How did that math work out? Yeah. So what was what were the forest owners offered? Uh, this program was run by a nonprofit on the ground, a conservation organization in Uganda, and, and they offered people $28 per hectare of forest that they owned each year. So you know, a typical person might own two hectares of forest. And so over the two years of the program, they might earn $100. And so that's one part of the cost. And then the, the nonprofit also had costs to, to market the program and they had to they hired a team that would go and do spot checks and see if people had cut trees. So the costs are about $200. And then when we compare that to the benefit in terms of carbon dioxide reductions, that benefits about $500. So about two and a half times as large. You know, how do we put a dollar value on right. <laughs> deforestation? You know, there's something called the social cost of carbon that a number of others have come up with, which is really saying for every ton of carbon dioxide we put into the air, what's the damage we do worldwide? And so we can take that hectares of forests that this program helped preserve, think about, okay, how much carbon dioxide did it delay and for how long, and then use that social cost of carbon and we could calculate the benefits. And they turned out to be quite big, you know, bigger than the costs. Mm -hmm. Okay, this study was conducted in Uganda. So let's broaden it out a little bit and say, you know, if this type of program was rolled out in a bunch of different places, you know, how much of the world's forests might actually be protected with this type of approach? 
Yeah, so this type of program could really be applied wherever forest is owned by families or communities, and that's a lot of the forest around the world. So if you just took three countries, you know, Brazil, Mexico, and China, they have well over 100 million hectares of privately owned forest. So if you're willing to extrapolate from our findings, you know, that's the potential to save millions and tens of millions of hectares of forest. Okay. Do you feel like there's anything um, that we didn't get to in the study that you wanted to cover? Yeah, like, I mean, there's one point that I think whenever like I casually talk to people about the, about the study, I, you know, this point about leakage, you know, like, I guess one thing I find interesting about the study is, especially for economists, there are many, many loopholes. And so, right. you know, like I, I sort of joke, if you ran this program for economists, they would find the loopholes. But <laughs> it, what's, what's nice is that most people don't act like that in reality. And you know, that's why the program works so well. What do you mean by leakage? Well, so like leakage, you and I, you know, we're friends and we're in the same village. And I could say, okay, I'm not going to sign up. You sign up. And you can come cut your trees on my land. And then, you know, so we'll split the money. We didn't reduce our deforestation. You just moved it to my land and we yeah. made money. And, so we... and you were able to, but you were able to account for that. In exactly, this case, right? exactly. That's but I guess cool. my thing is like people, you know, I think that part of the skepticism is that people, people are think... going to cheat. Yeah. And we're not, you know, it's like it's following the letter of the law. Or yeah, I guess right. it depends on what you just find as cheating. But, <laughs> you know, that people will fight like these contracts, if you, wanted to or could figure out the loopholes. I think there were plenty of them. And so I think like a lot of the debate about this is that, look, like we look at these contracts and we can see ways around them. And so therefore they won't work. And But I think what happens in reality is most people don't think like that and act like that. And so that's... The- I mean, there's always going to be a percentage of people who are, you know, operators who are trying something like that. But most people are just going to be like, this is something that's going to help me. And yeah, makes exactly. Sense. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think this sort of like simple optimistic view of, the, of human behavior uh, is like what we, you know, what played out in reality. And, and that's the difference between whether this kind of program has a big effect or a small effect. Seema, thanks so much for talking with me. It was my pleasure. Seema Jayachandran writes about trading cash for carbon in this week's issue of Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.